Good afternoon. You're joining yes. CDC's Ebola media briefing. On September 30th, 2014, the world's eyes turned we'll to Dallas, Texas. Our first speaker is CDC Director Dr. Tom Frieden. Dr. Frieden was appointed to lead the Centers for Disease Control by President Obama in 2009. Good afternoon, everybody, and thank you for joining us. A physician who specializes in internal medicine, infectious diseases, public health, and epidemiology, and who had been the Commissioner of Health for New York City, Dr. Frieden was about to face one of the greatest tests of his career. Today, we are providing the information that an individual traveling from Liberia has been diagnosed with Ebola in the United States. So this man from Liberia was named Thomas Duncan. He'd flown to Dallas 11 days earlier to visit family. Now, at that time, Liberia was one of three African countries struggling to get the most widespread outbreak of Ebola in history under control. And now it was here. So uh, this is the first case of Ebola diagnosed in the U.S. And as far as we understand of this strain of Ebola diagnosed outside of Africa. It was um, Dr. Frieden's job to lead uh, the response. Uh, any, any he explained that CDC had been preparing for this since the West Africa epidemic began. Ultimately, we are all connected by the air we breathe. And we are invested in ensuring that the disease is controlled in Africa, but also in ensuring that where there are patients in this country who become ill, they're immediately isolated, and we do the tried and true core public health interventions that stop the spread of Ebola. Tried and true core public health interventions, including one we've grown familiar with over the course of the COVID pandemic, contact tracing. In Dallas in 2014, that would be done by experts from CDC. We have a team en route to Texas now. They will work hand in hand with state and local and hospital public health and epidemiologic staff to identify all possible contacts and then monitor them every day for 21 days to see if they have fever. Frieden took several questions from reporters that day from local and national outlets on subjects ranging from how Duncan was doing at the hospital, how many people he might have exposed, and what was being done to keep this deadly disease from spreading when no one else had any more questions. I want to end with just a bottom line before we stop. Ebola is a scary disease because of the severity of illness it causes, and we're really hoping for the recovery of this individual. At the same time, we're stopping it in its tracks in this country. We can do that because of two things, strong healthcare infection control that stops the spread of Ebola and strong core public health functions that trace contacts, track contacts, isolate them if they have any symptoms and stop the, train, the chain of transmission. We're stopping this in its tracks. Thank you very much. Now, things did not go perfectly in the fall of 2014. Thomas Duncan, the man from Liberia, would later die of Ebola in a Dallas hospital. Two Dallas nurses would become the first and the second people to contract the disease in the United States, getting it from Duncan before he died. They recovered, thank goodness. 
But that's as far as Ebola got that year in Dallas. The chain of transmission was broken. Now, today, there's a new CDC director and a new virus in the United States. Nearly 240,000 Americans have died, and the number of infections is skyrocketing nationwide. How do you break this chain of transmission? Is it even possible? What can we do now? And what should our new president be planning to do in January? So we asked Dr. Frieden. Welcome to Side Dish, a Petri Dish Extra. I'm Bonnie Petrie, and this week we talked to former CDC director Tom Frieden about the winter surge and the many challenges to come. All right, so Dr. Frieden, hi. Um, first, let's talk about the CDC. So while watching you talk to reporters back in 2014, I noticed you took a lot of questions and you seemed to answer them as thoroughly as you could, given what you knew at the time. Now, we haven't seen that kind of engagement from anyone at the CDC during this pandemic, not since March anyway. Um, What do you think about that? I think if we look back at the U.S. response to COVID over the past year, of all of the failures, and there have been many failures, perhaps the one that's been most costly has been the failure to communicate effectively, because this means that we're not on the same page. We don't, as a community or as communities, we don't have a clear understanding of where the virus is, what we need to do to control it, and whether we're succeeding and what we're learning. Ultimately, controlling infectious diseases requires recognizing that we're all in this together. The only enemy here is a microbe. It's us against them, but the them is a pathogen. It's a virus. And the more we recognize that and the more we act with that understanding, the more lives we can save and the more jobs we can save. You just said right there that we're all in this together, and we've heard that a lot throughout this pandemic. But it reminds me of something you said back in 2014. You said, We're all connected by the air we breathe, which I thought was, you know, of course, accurate and also in a way kind of beautiful. So can you reflect on that a little bit? I do think that this recognition of interconnectedness is essential for the control of infectious diseases because we are all connected, not just by the air we breathe, but by the water we drink, by the food we eat. Uh, by the trains, planes, buses, and ships we travel in. And a disease threat anywhere is potentially a disease threat everywhere. That interconnectedness is both a risk and an opportunity. It's a risk because we are only as safe as the weakest link. And as diseases spread anywhere in communities or countries or the world without adequate control, they are potentially a risk everywhere else. But it is also an opportunity, because if we recognize that interconnectedness, then we can work together against the microbes to stop them. If we recognize the interconnectedness, then people may recognize that the moment they feel sick, they should not go into work. If we recognize that interconnectedness, we might recognize that it's not only a good thing to do, but it's in all of our self-interest to make sure that there's paid sick leave for all workers so that no one has an economic incentive to come to work sick. 
if we recognize that we're all connected, we may understand that we really do need to invest in public health at the national level in the U.S., at the state and local levels in the U.S., and globally. Public health is the best buy. It's got a great return on investment. If we can prevent diseases, we can save lives and save money. But that requires foresight, that requires following science, and fundamentally requires understanding that we are all connected. You've called CDC America's health defense, and being in charge of America's health defense seems like a pretty big responsibility. And I I like to ask people what keeps them up at night. Um, What kept you awake at night back then when you were in charge of America's health defense? Well, as CDC director, I, I didn't lose a lot of sleep because the staff there are so phenomenal. You have 20,000 people who have dedicated their lives to protecting Americans. But the, the thing that does worry me a lot is that we're, we're not preventing diseases that we could prevent. Um, public health is sometimes like the, the Greek tragedy of, of Cassandra, that we can see what's going to happen in the future. And Cassandra uh, was condemned to seeing the blood flowing down of future tragedies, warning people about it and not being listened to. And, and that's the challenge of, uh, of public health. Uh, in, in early March in New York City, I felt exactly that way. Those of us in public health knew what was coming, and yet the act of shutting a city is so extraordinary that there was great and understandable resistance to doing it. So that brings us to now, really, to the greatest public health crisis in a century. So we're in the midst of another COVID surge, and it's the third surge. Of course, we had the first one that you just talked about in the Northeast in March and April. And then there was the summer surge here in Texas and in the South. And now this one, which is on track to perhaps be the deadliest surge yet. And we appear to have no coherent national COVID strategy to sort of get us through this. So can you just dive into the intricacies of that? Can you sort of reflect on where we are right now? Right now, COVID has the upper hand. And sadly, we're facing a holiday season where we will have increased hospitalizations and increased deaths. Uh, Death is not going to take a holiday this holiday season. But the future is to a very great extent in our hands. There is a lot we can do to reduce the kind of disruption and economic devastation and death that COVID is causing. And that involves recognizing we're all connected, getting on the same page about what's actually happening with the virus, being clear about what our goals are. And they can be as simple as we're gonna minimize deaths and minimize job loss. And if we start with that basic concept, then there are lots of things we can do to support industries to stay open, to subsidize for a period of time those that can't safely open, to keep our schools open, to make sure that we recognize that there are things that we can do and there are things that we are going to have to hold off on for a while. 
okay, that's all policy talk, right? And and we've just elected a new president who will take over in January. And Joe Biden has already started meeting with his coronavirus task force and says he's crafting a national COVID strategy. And we'll talk about that in a minute. We're going to put a little pit in that. But January 20th, of course, Inauguration Day is more than two months away and infections are spiking now. So what can we do now until then to improve this situation? Well, the the hard truth is that the higher the peak of cases, the longer it's going to spread. And that means that the more it spreads now, the more through the holiday season and the more into 2021, we're going to have large numbers of cases and we are nowhere near herd immunity. Uh, To get to herd immunity, by the best estimate, we would need about four times as many cases and deaths as we've had already. That's, that means you'd have at least a half a million more deaths in the US. The only route to herd immunity without a vaccine is through graveyards filled with hundreds of thousands of Americans who didn't have to die. So I think what we have to do over these next few months is tamp down the virus by the three W's, wear a mask, watch your distance, wash your hands, reduce risky indoor exposures, and understand better where it's spreading so we can turn off what we call those epidemiologic pumps where they're driving cases, whether that's fraternities or um, choirs or uh, crowded indoor spaces, and then take measures that have broad impact. Paid sick leave is extremely important because if someone has to choose between getting food for their family or going in when they feel a little under the weather with a little bit of a headache and fever and cough, they're going to go in and they're going to infect others. And what we're seeing all over the country is a lot of spread at workplaces. Um, This is not something that can be fought just by government. This is something that all of us have to work together to do. And um, I think the more that we recognize that, the better off we'll all be. You just mentioned choir as one of the things that we can't do. And it made me think of your mom. I read about your mom when I was preparing for this interview. I know she's 91 and she loves singing in a chorus. And she hasn't been able to do that, of course, for months because it's too risky. So I just kind of want to know how she's doing. Mom's doing great. In fact, we're all going to quarantine for 14 days before Thanksgiving so we can all get together over Thanksgiving. Oh, that's wonderful. Is that something that Americans could do if they want to safely get together? Well, it's tricky. It involves how do you travel? Um, Can you travel safely? Can you quarantine? Um, We're fortunate. Well, actually, most of the extended family isn't able to, but at least a few of us are. So for the 14 days before we get together, Uh, we'll essentially be uh, not having contact with others. And then we're able to travel in a way that that has close to zero risk of exposure. And then we'll be able to get together for a few days. But it it is a challenge. And uh, I would say most of our extended family that usually gets together isn't able to do that. But some of us, we hope will, unless something else comes up that derails that plan. Okay, then the day after Thanksgiving is Black Friday, and it's giving me nightmares. (laughs) I have no doubt, of course, right, retailers and associated businesses, they need this to be a good one. 
it's been a rough year. But when I think of your typical Black Friday with, you know, big box stores and mobs of people climbing over each other to get discount TVs, and I I start to, you know, (laughs) get a little panicky. So um, what message should we be giving to the public as we head to the shopping season and the holiday season? I think the message needs to be that we can go about our lives if we do so sensibly and safely. And for shopping in the holiday season, uh, there are lots of adaptations that can be done that can allow us to do this well and without undue risk. These include universal wearing of masks, doing as much home delivery as possible, having storefront pickup available, especially for people who are older or who have underlying health conditions, increasing ventilation and cleaning, um, making sure that areas that are touched regularly, whether it's the pen at the checkout counter or the doorknob, are either cleaned regularly or better off figuring out a way not to have commonly touched substances because that is another way this can spread. Uh, Looking at things like distancing. So that may mean that stores have longer hours so that they can accommodate the same number of shoppers with less crowding. There are lots of things that we can do together to get through this both safer and with less economic harm. I think it was actually from Texas that I first saw the idea of uh, storefront pickups. Uh, And it it just made a huge amount of sense, very practical. Um, Why keep a store closed if you can open it with a staff person or two, uh, wearing masks, staying distance, not coming in if they're sick, and essentially provide storefront pickup um, availability. That's a great way of keeping our economy going uh, without creating undue risk. You talked about masks right there, and we know masks make a really big difference. There's plenty of research that now show that in areas with more mask usage, there are fewer infections. So why do you think it's been tough to get Americans to buy in to this one simple thing? Well, it's very unfortunate that basic things like wearing masks have turned into political symbols. And that's not just unfortunate, that's been deadly. So if you were talking to a person who wasn't wearing a mask and they said, well, you know, Dr. Fauci said, don't wear a mask. And then he said, do wear a mask. uh, What do you say to that kind of rhetoric? I think this is a casualty of the fact that CDC wasn't able to describe what we were learning as we were learning it. Um, Early on January, February, even into March, it was not at all clear that masks would be helpful. First off, if you look at diseases very much like COVID, MERS and SARS, they get much more infectious the sicker you get. So the viral load increases steadily. Surprisingly, COVID is exactly the opposite. Viral load starts very high before you have symptoms and then decreases so that by the time you're really sick in an intensive care unit, you have very little virus in your body. But when you're out shopping before you feel sick, you may be highly, highly infectious. And once we understood that and learned more about masking, it was clear that masking would be a really important strategy. I think it was John Maynard Keynes who said, uh, when the facts change, I changed my mind. What do you do, sir? And as we've learned about COVID, we've learned better ways to handle it. And we need to continue to learn how to minimize 
the health harm and minimize the economic harm. I, th I think I'm actually encouraged that uh, there's a hunger for information. Um, a good example is the issue of masks. 90% of Americans get it, and 70, 80, 90% of Americans are wearing masks regularly. Let's take yes for an answer. That's a remarkable success story. A year ago, nobody wore masks outside. If we had a, another public health problem and we got uh, community acceptance of an intervention that was completely un unfamiliar at three quarters or four fifths or even 90% of people doing it relatively regularly, we would be astounded that it's gone so well. So I think we have to recognize that there has been a lot of progress. And if you look around the US, the rates of COVID vary by 10 or 100 fold between different regions and states. Policy matters, public health matters. And the more we control the virus, the more we'll control our fates, our economy, get our jobs back. All right, so the pin, I said we would get back to policy and President-elect Biden. So if you were talking to the President-elect and not me right now, what would you be telling him to do so he could hit the ground running to fight this pandemic on January 20th? We need to drastically improve the control of COVID in this country. And the three things that are most important to do that are first, to get organized, to make clear who's in charge, what's our goal and how we're going to get there. Second, to communicate clearly. So we're all on the same page and we understand what needs to be done to stop spread of the virus. And third, to implement what works to find the success stories and build on them, to learn continuously as we go, because there's still a lot we don't know about how best to fight this virus while also protecting not only lives, but also livelihoods. Lives and livelihoods there, there you said it. So it feels like to me for months that we've been expected to choose one or the other. We can either protect public health or we can preserve the economy. And if you care about public health, that means you must not care about the economy and people's financial lives. I think that's a false choice, right? And it sounds like you're saying the same thing. They're not mutually exclusive. There's no friction between protecting public health and preserving the economy. If you look around the country and around the world, the places that have done the best job protecting the people against the virus have also had the fastest economic rebound and the less, least economic harm. You can both save lives and save jobs by reducing and stopping spread of the virus. So I follow you on Twitter and you're very active these days and your tweets are full of great information about the virus and where we are in the pandemic and public health policy. And I love it. But, but I think some of your tweets could fairly be interpreted as throwing shade, a little bit of shade, at the current policy coming from the White House. Do you ever feel at risk in any way when you speak up like that? Or do you feel like you just have to? I think it's important to tell the truth. It's important uh, to make clear what's happening. And one of the challenges has been that the, the world's top experts in this at the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention have not been allowed to speak directly to the public. And I would rather not have uh, been as public as I've been over the last nine months. Uh, but because of the absence of the CDC from the role of explaining public health, uh, 
I've been getting many, many calls a day from media asking me to describe and discuss what's going on and what we need to do. And uh, I, I, I just hope going forward, the CDC will be able to play that role and I'll be able to do that much less. As a former director of the CDC and as an expert in infectious diseases, is it difficult to not be in that role, to be kind of on the sidelines during a crisis like this? Well, actually, uh, our organization, Resolve to Save Lives, which is part of Vital Strategies, a global health organization, um, has been deeply engaged. In fact, over the last three and a half years, we've been working on epidemic prevention, particularly in Africa. So we've been able to help dozens of countries improve their response, improve their laboratory networks, do good contact tracing, have good information systems, engage with communities. It's just been so frustrating that although we've been able to do that effectively in dozens of other countries, it's been quite challenging to do that in the United States. Well, you're talking to folks in the United States right now. Is there anything else you think they should know? Well, I think it's important to put things in perspective. Um, there are so many false dichotomies out there between the idea that this is the worst thing ever or that it's a hoax and overblown. You know, it's, it's in between and it's not going to go on forever. It's going on way longer than any of us would like. We are sick and tired of it, but the virus doesn't get tired. It's still out there and the more we're able to recognize that we will get through this together, the more we'll be able to get through it safer. There's a reason I wanted to talk to Dr. Frieden this week in particular. If you look at the curve of COVID virus infections in the U.S. right now, it's going straight up. Every day, we have more than 100,000 new infections. 100,000. Now, Dr. Anthony Fauci back in July warned this could happen if we didn't start taking pandemic precautions seriously. And I've been warning you for months too, but now that we're here, it's it's overwhelming. It's It's terrible to look at these numbers every day. And these outbreaks are happening everywhere, all across the country, and they're finally hitting rural areas that are more isolated with very little in the way of, of health infrastructure. In small, isolated towns like the one I grew up in, don't have ICU beds. The closest ones are pretty far away, and there aren't many of them even there. Healthcare systems are buckling under the weight of this across the country right now, and it could get much worse if infections keep up at this rate. And the holidays are coming, a time for close contact, large family gatherings, packed shopping centers. During a pandemic, this is the type of nightmare scenario in which viruses thrive. And yet, We've heard no clear guidance from the federal government on how to navigate the next couple of months safely. Now, you could find some information if you click around the White House website, but there's nothing on the president's Twitter. The coronavirus task force has been mostly silent. It sort of feels like we're walking toward a cliff, and instead of, you know, seeing that and turning back around, we're starting to run toward it. And soon, 
will run off it and will be suspended over nothing. And then the free fall. President-elect Biden has announced his coronavirus task force, and he's promoting mask wearing, and he promises a national strategy to fight the pandemic on day one. But day one is January 20th, and all that's between now and then is that cliff. A hundred thousand additional people could die between now and then. So protecting ourselves, our families, each other, our country, between now and then, it's on us, right? We're kind of on our own here. We have to make our own decisions. So that's why I asked Dr. Frieden for guidance that I could share with you. The next couple of months present a number of challenges, but we can do this thing. We can flatten this curve, I promise you. We've done it before and we can do it again. And yes, the holidays are gonna be different this year, but that doesn't mean they can't be wonderful and joyful. It will just require planning and care and taking care of each other. Because as Dr. Frieden says, we all breathe the same air. We're all connected. We can't do this on our own. We can only do this together. During this season of Thanksgiving, let's show our gratitude and give thanks for each other by taking care of each other and protecting each other. Thank you, Dr. Frieden. This Petri Dish Extra was written and produced by me, our sound designer is Jacob Rosati. Our executive producer is Fernanda Camarena. Texas Public Radio's news director is Dan Katz. Mark Pembett is the managing editor of the Texas Newsroom. This podcast is a production of TPR and the Texas Newsroom, which is a collaboration between public radio stations across Texas and NPR. I'm Bonnie Petrie. Talk to you soon. <laughs>